Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, brought to you by Hodinkee. A loose discussion of travel, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 67, and we thank you for listening. You know, this is our, our second episode that we've recorded after kind of becoming part of the Hodinkee family here, and you know, we've gotten some, some great feedback from people, uh, a lot of support, and um, you know, things, things are, are different, but things are really kind of the same, wouldn't you say, James? Yeah, entirely. I couldn't thank people enough for the kind comments and the emails and all that. So that's been fantastic. We're thrilled that we're able to, you know, kind of push the show into into its next phase and make sure it's properly supported and all these sorts of things. And honestly, we have such a close connection with the team at Hodinkee. It, it really just makes a, a ton of sense. So yeah, thrilled about that. And, uh, and also pretty excited about today's topic. You know, we have kind of a, this is our sixth installment of Collection Inspection. And it's always been kind of a really popular one that, that we get a lot of emails about and that sort of thing. And, and we've got two really kind of different watches. Yeah, we haven't, um, I, I, you know, last time we did sort of a catch-up episode, it's it's good to kind of dig into watches. And uh, yeah, we haven't done we haven't done one of these collection inspections for, for quite a while. I don't even remember it's the last one. It's been a bit, one. yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess we can just uh, jump right in. Um, yeah, let's do it. The, 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 the two watches we have are uh, both certainly... Um, tool watches but but really couldn't be more different in in many respects yours is the is your beloved rolex yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's my it's my my perfect rolex the explorer 2 16 570 with the white dial nicknamed the polar and yours is a cwc right yeah it's the the cwc royal navy diver um a, a 1995 issued uh, uh with the quartz movement in it so very uh very different pieces but uh, similar in some respects i guess mm-hmm. yeah for sure and why don't you take us through the cwc and why you like it why it's in the collection yeah um so i i think i've had a couple of these before and, and they didn't stick for a while but um i've always been really attracted to to a few things about cwc for one thing it's um you know, for, for those of us, and I'm sure there are a lot of you out there that, that just like a, a kind of a proper tool watch. Um, this really fits the bill. It, it, CWC, the company, I, I wrote about it a while back uh, on Hodinkee. We'll put a, a, a link in the show notes. But the, the kind of the background of the company's very no-nonsense. It was started by a guy who um, was kind of the, the UK importer uh, and rep for Hamilton back in the 70s. And Okay. Hamilton was a supplier to the Royal Air Force and... Um, and the British Army back then, and and when Hamilton kind of upped stakes and and pulled out uh, of that arrangement, this guy Ray Malore sort of took it over and said, you know, I've got these contacts in the manufacturing side of things. I'm just going to start doing the same thing. And so founded Cabot Watch Company in 1972, and they they've done, you know, they were doing hand wound field watches and chronographs. And in in 1980, the the uh, Royal Navy decided that the Rolex Submariner was simply, you know, too expensive to kind of keep supplying to its its divers, and so they they looked around for an alternative, and and CWC stepped up and said, hey, we can we can do it for for a lot cheaper, and and they did, um, with kind of a an off the shelf case that was made by uh, a French company called MRP, um, and was used by a lot of different brands like Chronosport and Hoyer and a few others, and. Um, we're just putting ETA movements in it. Um, the automatic only lasted for a couple of years, and then in 83, they brought out a quartz watch. And I, I think the background of this watch is what appeals to me. It's it's just, it's like, 
it just feels like kind of a, a standard sort of uh, mill spec piece of kit, like, you know, like a tent or a parachute or, or you know, a, a backpack that the that the military would order. There, there's sure. been so little kind of marketing over the years from CWC until very recently. It was always just sort of a military surplus piece. And that appealed to me. And also, I love this case. I love the the kind of curvy case on this thing. The way it kind of flows into the, the crown guards is, is really nice. And it, for something that is, is very much just a, a military kind of tool piece, um, it has a really kind of nostalgic, uh, very classic look about it. And then, of course, mm-hmm. it has all the, the markings of the... the the uh, the UK Ministry of Defense's specifications, which uh, demand uh, a fully hashed uh, dive bezel, um, kind of that very um, well known uh, dial configuration, and then the the sword hands, um, and then this one has uh, the fixed bars, so you can only use a NATO strap or a oh, NATO pull, only pull okay. yeah, strap yeah. on it. So. Um, you know, design-wise and sort of history-wise, it's appealing, but also I, I, I think it's it's really kind of the ultimate beater watch. Um, you know, the, that, that term is often overused, and everybody has their own definition of a beater. But for me, it's it's a it's a very much a grab-and-go uh, watch, especially with the quartz movement. There's no date to set. You know, the battery lasts a few years, and I often just kind of tuck this in my DOP kit and travel with it as a backup watch and might never even pull it out of my bag. I'm just not a G-Shock guy. You know, I, I, a lot of people say, oh, my G-Shock is, is my my beater. Um, but for me, I, I'm just not a, a much of a digital or G-Shock guy. So this this fits that bill in, in very much a kind of a similar capacity. It doesn't have all the functions that a, a digital G-Shock or something would have, but it's 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 as equally rugged and, and still much more versatile, I guess, in terms of you can dress it up or down or whatever. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's funny, like, for me, my G-Shock for a long time has been the Aerospace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a pretty fun watch and uh, and, and a good option to kind of toss in a bag or tuck into a pocket somewhere on a backpack just in case. Yeah. And I think something like this is just way more rugged, but kind of interestingly, like he said, not only is it more rugged, it's also somehow more classy. So yeah. you really could, like, like, in a pinch, that's the watch that you have and you're going to kind of a nicer dinner. Yeah, it's not going to look that out of place on your wrist on a NATO. Maybe have a leather NATO if you if you were lucky enough to to have one of those in your pocket or something. Yeah, that's true. I, but, I've never tried it on a leather NATO. That's a good idea. I bet you would look pretty good, kind of like a rustic style. Uh, yeah. The sizing you you wrote the sizing down in the note, and because of the quartz movement, it comes in at eleven millimeters, which for a dive watch is very respectable. Yeah, it and forty two by forty six by eleven. That's pretty much universally wearable because the diminished thickness of a case that thin is really uh really makes a lot out of 42 millimeters that sits right around the exact measurements of like a an old school uh seamaster like my 2254 or something like that right and and you know maybe it's um you know no coincidence that this kind of came out of that same specification from which the seamaster 300 and the the submariner came but yeah at 42 um with a 46 millimeter lug to lug it it, you're right it, it is pretty universally wearable and surprisingly it has it still has some heft to it even though you know a lot of quartz watches you pick them up and it's like oh yep it's quartz but like this hollow. one um, yeah but um this has some serious weight to it it, it feels very much like my no date sub of course the no date subs what you know th- between 39 and 40 millimeters across and but it has you know obviously a similar aesthetic um but the the kind of the height of it and the way it wears is 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 very similar and and from a distance you know if you saw someone wearing this you might think submariner or seamaster um, but then you get up close and it's, you know, this kind of 
CWC logo with a little circle around it and this big, big word quartz across the bottom of the dial. I mean, it's very unpretentious and very, it's kind of one of those inside sort of wink, wink watches that, you know, if somebody knew what you had on, it's, it's just kind of got a neat background, neat story to it. And, um, I, I bought this from a guy who was actually, um, I think he was in the, the Royal Navy. Um, and I'm not sure if this was his issued watch, but he, he told me that, that he got it from a guy who was in the special boat service, which is a kind of the special forces, uh, unit of the Royal Navy. I suppose uh, if you compare it to like the Navy SEALs or something like that. And, and it was actually issued in 1995. So it has the, the markings on the back with the, the British, uh, the broad arrow logo that they put on, uh, property of the government. Um, and, and then the serial number slash uh, 1995 on the back. And, um, those were the days when they were using, uh, tritium as the, uh, the loom, the luminescent material. And so it's got the circle T on the dial and it's just starting to kind of age nicely, kind of get a little bit creamy. You know, I, I, I have to admit, I don't wear this watch terribly often, but I, I pulled it out the other day and I started wearing it. And then when you and I talked about this episode, um, I've just been wearing it more and I kind of go in phases with it. You know, sometimes it's, it's a little bit sterile, a little bit stark and, mm-hmm. you know, qu- quartz isn't always my favorite thing to wear, but, um, I, I think it's a keeper, you know, you can never say for sure, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it kind of hits, it, it fits that, that purpose where, you know, battery will run out. I'll swap the battery, get it pressure checked, keep it in a bag and, and pull it out. Um, you've taken it diving. Yeah, I I took it to um, Sri Lanka was, what, was two summers ago, I guess, when I did that uh, HMS Hermes. Oh, of course, uh, yeah, yeah. Set of technical dives, and um, I brought this as kind of my backup watch, and then I had my my Rolex uh, No Date Sub, which you know is kind of the watch that I like to do significant things with and kind of wear to kind of keep as a memento of of adventures. And um, I did three dives in the Hermes, and and I remember the first day as I was kind of getting ready, I thought to myself, you know, I, this is kind of an unfamiliar, you know, deep dive, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 55 meters, whatever. Um, I've got a lot of extra gear. I was using, you know, two side tanks and two tanks on the back. And I just thought, you know, maybe for the first dive, I should kind of shake down everything and and not have to worry about my watch. And so I thought I'll, maybe I'll wear the CWC, which, you know, worked, worked out great. And the fact that, that I was diving on a, a Royal Navy shipwreck it seemed somehow appropriate to wear a royal navy watch and um so i've I, it does have a little bit of my own sort of adventure history for sure in it which which is also very kind of appealing about it so that's cool i think it's great that you're able to you know dive it on a ship that kind of has that connection with the royal navy and, and the watch and obviously that it held up is exactly what you'd expect from a watch like that and a watch with uh you know a history like uh like this cwc diver so uh, as far as they go, I, I went on their website and they sell quite a few different models. What should someone expect to spend on a CWC Royal Navy diver? Yeah, so many, uh, so many variants. I, I, I yeah. hadn't looked at their website in a while, and I, I went before the episode as well and looked. And gosh, they must have twelve different variants of all different sort of bezel types and mm-hmm. um, case polishing and that sort of thing. The, the, I think the lowest price one you can get looks like it goes for four hundred ninety nine. British pounds, which is about 650 bucks in us on okay. up to, uh, about a thousand for, for this quartz one. Um, so, you know, it all depends. I, you could get the, the most basic, you know, 
$650 one and, and you'd be good to go. I think they're all very, very, very similar. The current ones use uh, Luminova for the dial loom, obviously now. Um, so it's a circle L, but otherwise it's pretty, pretty well identical to the one I have. And, um, you know, they did re-release or kind of do a tribute piece to the original 1980 uh, automatic watch. Um, they came out with that last year and I had one in for review. Um, the jury was sort of split, um, kind of generally on that watch because of the kind of heavy handed Fotina they used. It was almost like a dark butterscotchy kind of color, which matched, okay. matched yeah. some of the vintage ones, but it was just a little too gold. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, if you want an automatic, uh, so you can certainly spring for that. It, it, that one goes for quite a, a price increase. I think that one's closer to 2000 bucks, but for, for six fifty. I don't know. It's kind of funny. I don't almost see this watch even occupying the same sort of general realm as other watches in that price. Like when I think of 650, you know, you're talking some Seikos, Helios, I suppose Ravens, you know, whatever kind of the micro brands between 650 and a thousand bucks. But because this one is just feels like military surplus, it almost doesn't even feel like the, you know, you're buying kind of a similar watch, but I guess when you have to kind of eyeball it or, or compare it to something else in the same price range, um, it holds up very well. I mean, it's got great history. I, I think you have to be someone who is okay with quartz for one thing and okay with, you know, quartz being prominently written on the dial. For um, sure. And, uh, kind of get into that very stark sort of classic military look, which, um, I happen to like, so. And then if somebody wanted a issued version like yours, yeah, I'm assuming there's a, there's a, a considerable premium at that point. Um, you know, for a while, not really. I mean, I think I might have paid about just a thousand bucks for this one. Um, that was a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago. Um, so I'm sure they're up from there. I think they're getting obviously more scarce. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you can go on like eBay or Military Watch Resource or Watch Recon. And, uh, you know, for the quartz issued, there are obviously a lot more. The automatics are really expensive because they only made them for two years. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they're still reasonable. I mean, and to get... It's not a crazy price for an issued watch either, like when you consider the fact that some of them are just... Like, it, it's it's a very kind of narrow niche to yeah. follow as far as a watch, like wanting not only a certain watch, but wanting it to be issued. Like, even if you went to something like the Eterna that was issued, yeah. um, those are... You know, the the Contikis, they're just hugely expensive. Yeah, and, and this is this is basically the watch that replaced the... the Seamaster 300 and the, and the mill sub, mm-hmm. this came right after that. I mean, obviously the automatic came in between, but you're, you're getting a watch with, um, some serious pedigree and, and to have an issued piece is, it means a lot to a lot of people. I'm not kind of a collector that has necessarily sought that sort of thing out. I think if this wasn't issued, I'd still love the watch. Um, I yeah. happen to like the, the vintage of it, um, because of the, the tritium loom, I think it ages nicely and I'm kind of a... I kind of like the circle T instead of the circle L because it has that tie-in with with the old Seamasters and Submariners. But uh, for sure, I don't know. They're 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 great. Uh, they're great watches for for a lot of reasons, and um, I've had a lot of fun with it. I I you know you can only wear it on NATO, and you, you know yep. everybody's well aware of our love of, of NATO Works straps. <laughs> and uh, but I recently, uh, most recently, put it on one of these um, sort of single piece pull through. I guess RAF style or whatever they call it, straps. Um, I got it on kind of a khaki one and uh, looks great. And um, I'm going to try it on a leather NATO like you suggested. I think that's a that's a really cool idea. 
I think it could be a winner for sure. And I, you know, I, I kind of like, especially, especially in an episode where I'm going to talk about a Rolex. I like that we have a watch that, I mean, like someone could turn around and buy for well under a thousand dollars. Yeah. That yeah. I think you love, and I think is very interesting and very cool and, and would happily, you know, kind of have one yeah. uh, to play around with. So I'm, I'm glad that we didn't, uh, we didn't both square up on uh, some more expensive, uh, some more expensive pieces. Yeah. Well, why don't we jump into your Rolex, which I've seen in person, and, and I happen to love that model as well. I, I think it's a great watch. Why don't you kind of give us a little history on that? 16570, this one's commonly called the Polar. It also came in a black dial. Uh, so those are the two versions. And, you know, the main things that kind of set this one apart for me is, um, and, and the reason that I wanted it, you know, I have kind of two Rolexes that I really love. They're both from the same generation. Like, I think personally i think i would love to have some vintage rolexes yeah but i also you know they're worth quite a lot of money so i think i would end up feeling kind of dear about them and i don't want that in my life i i want something that i'm comfortable wearing i bought this for my 30th birthday and then promptly took it up baker twice on the outside of my jacket yeah um i wanted to wear it as you would wear an explorer's watch and uh, and i have and i continue to take it all over the world it's my go-to travel watch I absolutely adore the case. This is that 39, 40 millimeter thinner case. It's before they went to the kind of chunkier, larger case. Certainly the Explorer 2 now is quite a bit bigger, both in terms of its dial proportions and it has the orange hand, which kind of calls back to the 1655. And and this one for me is like, it's essentially a perfect sports watch design. I love the white dial. I love that the the markers in the hands have black surrounds. So it's a little bit less shiny I think it's absolutely gorgeous. I love the functionality. Obviously, two time zones very easily. It has local jumping. Um, this is a very late example. So you have Rolex repeating on the Riot. I don't have drilled lugs, but I do get a 3186 movement. So it's a little bit more anti-magnetic. You have a blue paracorn hairspring. And other than that, they made this watch for a really long time. So if you get an early one, the dial can go kind of creamy. Certainly the loom plots and the hands can go creamy. And that looks awesome yeah but where the pricing was a couple years ago it's not now Mm -hmm. especially not on older ones uh these ones that like like mine you know with the updated loom and the updated movement they're pretty steady in the pricing and you can go on watch recon and see what the pricing is kind of sitting at um there's there there's not really a limit to these on the market you know like a 3186 gmt master 2 yeah which of course would give you the movement that's in a current Batman or or the Jubilee Steel or something like that. That's the thirty one eighty six. Um, those ones were made for a very tiny amount of time. So a sixteen seven ten, which is the GMT Master two, with a thirty one eighty six, is very expensive. You pay a yeah. tiny premium on the Explorer two because they made them for longer. I think there was like the better part of a year and a half to two years of production of sixteen five seventies with the thirty one eighty six. But I don't think any of that really matters. I would wear an old one just as happily. And I think if it, I, I bought the one that I was able to purchase from someone I trusted, I didn't spend a lot of time like hemming and hawing because I had so many options. I told a few people that I was looking for one. One of them came back and said, I have one. Come take a look at it. I looked at it. I liked it. I checked out the movement, all of that, and I bought it. I didn't really think about it that much. I knew what I wanted in terms of I wanted a 16.570 in white. Yeah. And that's what I got. And I, I mean, I just, I just love it. It's amazing on a NATO. It's amazing on a leather strap. I recently bought this kind of 
hilariously good Hadley Roma Jubilee, <laughs> which I've been wearing it on. So yeah. on a Jubilee, it really kind of changes how the watch wears. It gives it kind of a different vibe. I, I think yours is the first uh, Explorer 2 I've seen on a Jubilee. I can't think of anybody else that's done that. I mean, I, I don't even know if I would assume the older Rolex Jubilee uh, bracelets will fit on that watch. Um at a, at, a, at a price premium. Yeah, I get people on Instagram asking, like, which bracelet and which end link I use, and I just reply, like, it's a Hadley Roma. You can buy them from... I bought them from a site called Hoblins. Uh, they aren't hard to find. It's a 20-millimeter Hadley Roma Jubilee. Yeah. And then you kind of have to adjust the bent end links yourself. Oh, sure. So you'll yeah. you'll fit them and see that they don't fit quite well and then tighten them down a little bit, and you got to play with it a little bit. It's not yeah. that hard. Yeah. Um, ultimately, the Oyster it comes on is awesome. Mm-hmm. And if you buy it without the Oyster, I mean, it wouldn't have bothered me if I didn't have... The, I have the bracelet for it. I have the original bracelet, but it, it wouldn't have bothered me if I didn't because the watch really just sings on a NATO. Yeah. It's so, so good. Does that watch on, on NATO, is it... Um, I know with my no-date sub from the similar era, um, there's that sort of case clearance to, to spring bar issue that prevents some thicker NATOs from working. Do you have that same problem? Uh, a thicker NATO will not fit. That well, you certainly um, you can place the spring bar, so you can lay the NATO between the strap and then squeeze the spring bar in. Yeah, if you want to, I have no trouble with uh, a toxic NATO, which is my my usual, or the my other favorite, which is the uh, Crown and Buckle Premium. Yeah, those are the two that kind of I wear constantly, and uh, and especially the in the gray on the Explorer Two. That's uh, I, I like that one quite a bit. As far as a background for how I got to this one versus another one, I feel like I see subs a lot. Mm-hmm. And that does kind of affect how I feel about something, especially if I see them, I just kind of see them constantly, then I don't feel like I need to fill that void on my own wrist. <laughs> yeah. And I adore, obviously, I'm long on record, I adore two time zone watches, GMTs of, of different types. And at the time, I was looking for either a 16710, preferably with the all black bezel. But uh, I would have taken a Pepsi. Mm-hmm. I would have taken any of them and found the other bezels. Yeah, sixteen seven tens were already starting to get expensive. So at the time they were, you know, between high fours to high fives, depending, you know, American. And uh, and I was able to get this Rolex Explorer two for significantly less than that, and it was higher on my list. But they were a little bit harder to come by. Just a white one. Yeah, black ones at the time were were pretty much you could just buy them on Watch Recon. But when I was able to source this one in Vancouver really easily through somebody I know and, and trust. Um, it was a really easy decision. The main reason this kind of landed on my radar in the first place or kind of stuck in my brain is um, is this is the watch that Ed Vesters wore through his time, you know, conquering the top 14 peaks in the world. And his relationship with Rolex is kind of ongoing and he still wears, you know, they put out a video just the other day on their YouTube channel of, of Vesters talking about this watch. And I, I've definitely said before that I don't think that ambassadors work or like who wears a watch works, but like reading in Vester's book that he had found this white dial Rolex that he liked and that's what he was wearing. Yeah. He doesn't even say what it is. Yeah. In no in no shortcuts to the top. I'm not sure he cares that much. Yeah. You know, but it means something to me. I have the ad on my wall. Yeah. That has, you know, Vester's walking across some precipice scary looking ledge and then the the same watch just below it i mean it typically actually the one in the in the ad ha- is an earlier version yeah with lug holes and such but a very similar version of the watch and that's kind of what put it on my radar in the first place and then uh it's it's a watch where i, I think you see it in person 
and especially in the white, the proportions are so perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The legibility is fantastic. And I like that, you know, the loom isn't great on this watch anymore. This watch is from about 2006, 2007, and the plots aren't that big to begin with. They're not as big as a dive watch that's pre-maxi dial. But because it's white, uh, you know, black on white, you can kind of turn it against any available light and get an idea of where the hands are. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, you know, you get the uh, you get the local jumping hour. So I land somewhere else. You know, I'm I'm traveling tomorrow. This will be the watch on my wrist. I'll land. I'm landing in Denver, which is plus one hour, and I can very easily jump the watch ahead. I don't have to take it off my wrist. The watch has been absolutely bulletproof. Like talk about a watch living up to the reputation that the brand has. Uh, I've worn it everywhere in lots of scenarios where you might not want to have a Rolex on your wrist. Certainly up and down mountains, lots of hiking, that sort of thing. And it's always been nothing short of great. Uh, I, I can't say enough great things about this watch. The only bummer is is that you know they kind of get more expensive by the day. They, <laughs> I don't think these ones have popped. It's it, it, 16.570s have not done what 16.710s have done. And, uh, and and so I think that there's still some some case to be made that it's a, it's a pretty great Rolex for the money. But the truth is, is like, for my money, I'm buying either an Explorer 1 or an Explorer 2. And I love GMT, so it's going to be an Explorer 2. Yeah. And uh, and I would still like to have a 16710 GMT Master. But, you know, that, that'll that have to wait because they, they have gotten quite expensive. Especially given that you can find them on, you know, bracelets. And it's the color that people want. It's the color that Rolex just brought back. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons that, that play into that. And, and certainly when it's so hard to buy one in a store... Mm-hmm. It had it. It kind of reflects into what is available on the market. So you know, if Rolex were to eventually redo the Explorer Two and it somehow came closer to the sixteen five seventy than it, than the current generation, then you would expect the fi- the sixteen five seventy to kind of crawl up a bit. Yeah, um, and I, I I know you can see, or I've found uh, sort of really beat up Explorer Twos. I I think a lot of them get used as intended or, or by people as, as true sports watches out, out doing stuff, because it's, it's not the, the, the most popular Rolex It's probably arguably the least popular Rolex that, that they were selling for a while there. Um, just because it was kind of quirky and kind of fit between the GMT master, but didn't have the rotating bezel. It wasn't a sub, etc. Um, so, you know, you find a lot with really nicked up bezels and, and, you know, pretty, pretty battered. Um, and, and I, I don't know about if you've noticed this, but are the black dialed ones from that generation less expensive or the white dialed ones going for a little more or doesn't it really matter i haven't noticed i think it definitely comes down to condition yeah i I don't think that there's a big price variance you will find that the part of the watch that gets most chewed up is the steel bezel yeah and that's because what what's most noticeable about is is it's not really an insert it's a it's like a radial finished steel Oh um, yeah. So it, it has this very specific pattern in the brushing. So any scratch, yeah, is very is very evident. What you also get is like some buffing on the finish, which I believe is probably from the sleeve oh, of sure. the person wearing it. Yeah, not unlike what happens to the very similar brushed finish to the case of a of a Speedy Mark II, mm-hmm. where one side, typically the left side, will be slightly polished by the sleeve <laughs> of the guy yeah. that wore it over yeah. time. Yeah. You get these ones where it's all chewed up, the lugs might be all scratched up, and then you'll see some very strange sort of wear patterns on the bezel. If that matters to you, that's not the one to buy. If it doesn't matter, there are there are I still see some sometimes where they don't have a bracelet, it's kind of head only or on a NATO or something like that. 
and they're beat up. Mm-hmm. But these, like, it's still it's still a semi modern Rolex. So I mean, you could make the case that a lot of it could be replaced if it was important to you. Rolex services watches long, long over that time kind of time span. I, I think the the white dial particularly is it's. I mean, uh, the black dial is just fine, but but I think the white dial really stands out because it's so different from so many other. Rolexes, Rolex. especially sports yeah. watches. And I, I also feel like when Rolex went from matte dial to that sort of shiny uh, black dial on so many of their watches, including my Note 8 Sub, it changed really how the watch looked overall. And I'm, I'm fine with my Sub with the shiny dial, but um, the shiny dial, shiny black dial on the Explorer 2 just looks a little too shiny next to that steel bezel. And I think the white dial, you just don't get that. It's just, it's a white dial. And, and the, that black outline around the, the markers is just, it's so crisp. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a watch that you could, you know, wearing on a NATO or a leather strap, um, I, I would feel a little more secure in shadier parts of the world uh, wearing it um, than, than a sub with, on a bracelet or something that, that is just screams, you know, Rolex. And, Rolex. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I, I entirely agree. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stand. I don't mind taking a stand. It's, it's not going to be a popular one. I don't like the black dial. Yeah. The, so much of the appeal of the sixteen five seventy is in the white dial for me. Yeah, that you know, if they, if it wasn't, if if I couldn't get a white dial or I couldn't afford one or it didn't exist, I wouldn't be going for a black dial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would have saved up and probably got a GMT Master too. I like the white dial specifically. I also think it's a markedly better watch on wrist than the current generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a little bit too big. The proportions are a little bit different. I will say the current generation is better made. Yeah has far better loom yeah like way better yeah and is like is a nicer watch by many different measures mm-hmm. but the 16570 is the one that i love and that's why i have it and that's why I, like I, it would literally be one of the last watches i would get rid of i could easily like i would i would have absolutely no trouble aside from the fact that i make my living in the watch industry mm-hmm. having this be my only watch yeah yeah, you know, I've experienced Seikos and I love them. I've experienced the Doxa and I love it. You know, I, I've experienced a lot of really great watches, but I could end those experiences. Yeah, and just wear this Explorer too. Yeah, and 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 it wouldn't bother me. This is a perfect watch. I could wear it every day. Maybe maybe I would want like a fifteen dollar Casio to take running. Sure, has a chronograph, something like that. Yeah, but for ninety nine percent of my uses, this could be my only watch. I think it's an absolutely fantastic watch and i think that up until maybe a year ago it was a bit of a sleeper in mm. terms of its pricing yeah uh both the white and the black dial and i don't i don't want to like disparage the black dial if you like the black that's awesome my connection with the white is very specific so that's where i land yeah i i think the history of the explorer 2 you know you, you look at a certain subset of watches over history um that have been so purpose-built that they almost you know uh they almost exist outside the realm of kind of typical sort of luxury sports watches. I think of like the Ploprof, the Sea Dweller, um, you know, whatever, the Breitling Emergency or whatever. These these are absolute purpose-built watches. And, and this is one of them because, I, you know, from my understanding, this was developed for polar explorers and cave, you know, spelunkers, cave explorers to keep an orientation to the, the time of day in 24-hour darkness. And I think that sort of genesis um, is just such a neat story that, you know, certainly you look at any dive watch and the reason it came about was for a certain reason, but they've, they've kind of morphed mm-hmm. into something different. And, and the watch you have, uh, you know, aside from being Ed Veester's favorite, um, came about with you know, such a specific purpose. And I think that's just, 
for me that the story behind the genesis of watches is is often plays a, a big role in in my allure or my uh, interest in them absolutely i mean it's an esoteric birth for sure yeah. with the idea the idea that they they made essentially a watch with a fixed 24 hour hand so it wasn't even a travel watch yeah and i mean to its credit they don't call the explorer 2 a gmt yeah they call it an explorer 2 it has the same functionality aside from of course the 24 hour bezel of the gmt master 2 mm-hmm. but in its you know in its birth it was it had a fixed 24 hour hand so that in the dark of a cave or theoretically in the sunless daytime of some Arctic exploring, you would have an exact reference to whether or not you were currently existing in AM or PM despite the darkness. Yeah. It's yeah. clever. It's clever. It was a small modification to a watch, you know, to kind of a platform they already had. Yeah. And it's now lived on as this kind of oddball that sits somewhere between an explorer and a GMT master, you know, it it has a, a trip lock crown. It has enough water resistance to take it diving if you wanted to go diving and not use it as a dive watch. Like it's just a consummate sport watch. It's just the right size. And then I don't. I shouldn't talk anymore. But about the white dial. But and then the white dial. That's that's what gets me. And I, I would very much love to have a sixteen fifty five. But the prices are yeah well outside my existence. Yeah. I wore one very briefly. It's in my Instagram. I, c- I can link it. But at that UTA pop up space, we uh, Hodinkee was. Uh, selling one through the shop, this gorgeous yeah. um, early Explorer Two, and uh, I wore one briefly. And man, does that feel right? Yeah, and that's real good. But really, but cool. only with black dial. <laughs> only with black dial, and that black dial doesn't bother me one bit. Yeah. It's not shiny. Yeah, right. It's just perfect. I mean, that's a really cool watch, but they're so expensive now. I know, I know. My my wife's boss, uh, actually, the I think the CEO of her company, I saw him a few years ago at some event. And uh, glanced at his wrist, and he had one of those, and he had no idea what it was, and it was given to him as a gift in 1972 by his sister, who bought it in the Middle East somewhere. And and once I told him, he just his jaw dropped. He had no idea what he had, and he loved it. He's worn it ever since. And uh, but it's just like it's just that kind of watch. It's just so cool. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and that is kind of like like that story you had when you went to the the Red Bull Stratosphere. Yeah, yeah. Jump, and you met that guy that had the old GMT Master. Yeah. This is another sort of like like Rolex just kind of has that thing where you see them and they've they've had these 20 and 30 year lives on the wrists of kind of interesting people who have no clue and also really no care for what's on their wrists aside from the fact that they know it's a good watch. Right, right. You know, these are people who, who are in scenarios where like their life requires a good bag or a good car or a good camera Land or, Rover yeah. or a good camera or exactly. Yeah. And, and that sort of thing. And, and the rest of it, it just qualifies as good. Yeah, yeah. And the rest of it is just their story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This feels this like awesome. this feels like the the old uh, canvas camera bag with the old battered Leica from a photojournalist or something. This is that watch, you know? It's that Yeah, I, that I hope tool. in, say, 20 years, that's exactly what it'll be for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When it's even more scratched up than it is now. Yeah, cool. But yeah, I think it's a, a great watch, and I, I think that's a really solid collection inspection. Obviously, if anyone has any questions, uh, concerns, comments, whatever, thegraynado at gmail.com, or throw it in the comments on Instagram or at Hodinkee, whatever, whatever works. Yeah, We'll try and keep track of all the feedback for these sorts of things. We uh, we love doing these episodes, and neither Jason and I have you know giant collections, so there can really only be so many collection inspections before we kind of run out. <laughs> right. Um, you know, we, we get to see and, and play with a lot of watches, but very few of them become ours. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think it's kind of fun to do one of these every now and then, and, and I'm thrilled by these two watches for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good one.
How do you feel about some final notes? Yeah, I've got a, an appropriate one to kick off with, uh, tied, Let's do tied it. on with your, uh, your Polar Explorer, uh, Explorer 2. Um, there was a kind of a great um, sort of photo essay article on the New York Times uh, back in late September. Um, it was entitled, Ice Surveys and Neckties at Dinner, Here's Life at an Arctic Outpost. And uh, it's, it's one of the great sort of online pieces that, that the Times has done recently. Um, I think we, you know, we've talked about a few in the past about diving under the, under the polar ice or something where oh, they, they sure, sort of yeah. incorporate a lot of video and some great photos. This one doesn't have um, quite the interactive features, but it, it has some beautiful photography. And, and it's just kind of an interesting story about a, uh, a scientific base in the north of Greenland where they're studying uh, the Arctic ice. Uh, I think it's a Danish uh, outpost um, that's manned, you know, year round and, and they have to keep the, the runway plowed and, and they have, it's a very stark sort of Spartan life for these scientists that live there. And so they have these, these traditions, these, these things that they do to kind of keep it fun and, and stay sane in, in a very dark and very cold place and in very close quarters with each other. And, um, the title kind of hints at one of them. And that is that I think every Sunday or, or one day out of the week, they, they all, uh, sort of dress up for dinner uh, and wear a necktie for dinner and um so that's that's talked about in the article and there's some just some great big you know full screen look at it on a nice the biggest screen you can find some just great photography of of the landscape and and this old uh i think it's like an old dc3 uh you know prop plane that that provides their transport in and out and um just kind of some of the work they're doing there i i, I just I, you know i think you and i both are fans of Arctic exploration and kind of that 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 really stripped back um, sort of hard lifestyle that that goes with uh, with anything going on in the at the poles or, or in absolutely the, in, in the Arctic or Antarctic. So um, check it out. I didn't see any uh, Explorer twos in the photos, but maybe they were under uh, under jacket sleeves. Yeah, or or as I learned recently, um, I interviewed Jimmy Chin. Oh. who will actually lead into my first uh, final note. But I, I interviewed Jimmy Chin for an upcoming uh, project with Hodinkee. And uh, there, when he's on expedition, they don't wear the watch on their wrist. Yeah. So like a Sunto or something like that. It's actually like they take the strap off and then affix essentially like a, a paracord necklace. Oh, sure. And they wear it around their neck, so it tucks in under all their stuff. But they can easily, you know, unzip a, a layer or two, pull it out, and 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 use it. Yeah. And then it's also, you know, can be tucked right back in and zipped back up. Yeah. Which I, I thought was fascinating. So maybe, maybe I don't know if you do that for polar exploring. This was very specific to you know Jimmy Chin in Pakistan or, or or places where it's like very hard and the climbing is really intense. You know, Maru and that sort of thing. He's like, yeah, you don't see any watches in Maru because they're all around our neck. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is uh, really cool, but does lead me into uh, into my first final note, which is Alex Honnold recently did a TED talk uh, called "How I Climbed a Three Thousand Foot Vertical Cliff Without Ropes." Huh. And Honnold doesn't do a lot of public speaking. Obviously, uh, I, I feel like we've talked about free solo on TGM, but now I can't remember if we have. We definitely talked about uh, the climb when it happened. Yeah, but of course, Honnold climbed uh, a route in Al Capitan without ropes that like defies all explanation and Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vassar Haley. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. It's actually Jimmy's wife. You know, they made Maru. They're also making, or they've also produced a film called free solo that a lot of you can probably see now in cities that you live in. 
It's uh, it's in release at some point in theaters. I'm sure it'll be online eventually. The movie's purported to be incredible, like really insane. It's a huge climb, no ropes, full free solo. The movie is called Free Solo, but Honnold doesn't do a lot of public speaking, and uh, and and this TED talk is really fascinating, and and it's an interesting look at his personality. I'm not going to give anything away. I'm not going to like over talk it. Just by all means, hit the show notes or just go to TED. It's going to be it's going to be popular for a while with Free Solo being kind of a big deal for the next bit. Um, check out his uh, his TED talk. It's 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 Honnold, you know, explaining a perspective that nobody in the audience can share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really incredible. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see that. Um, you know, the few sort of interviews I've I've read with him, he comes across as a very um, almost disconcertingly calm, almost Zen-like guy that, that it's not that uh, you expect someone like that to be sort of reckless and, and, uh, yep. sort of not bro-y. caring and bro and whatever, but he's, yeah. he's not, the he's, opposite. He, he totally gets what this is all about and the risks he's taking, but it, there's just something a little different in the way he approaches it. That's very refreshing. So I, I can't wait to, to listen to that or, or watch that. The other thing that I can throw in the show notes is, uh, it was a while ago. It was before he, he did the, um, the road in Yosemite, he sat down with Tim Ferriss for the Tim Ferriss podcast mm-hmm. and had a much longer, you know, it's lo- super long format. I'll include that as well. It's a fantastic look into kind of his mindset. But yeah, the guy is, you 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 hear him speak and you kind of see him and like he has this calmness about him and, and his words are very purposeful and you think like this isn't a guy that goes out of his way to risk his life, but like the stuff he talks about in this TED talk will give you a different idea in terms of his actions and where he kind of sees the need for perfection. It's, it's I thought it was fascinating. Oh, cool. I've got another one, um, kind of interestingly similar, but very different um, from Alex Honnold. This is called, uh, it's a movie um, that you can stream or, or buy or whatever you want to do on iTunes called Coyote, the Mike Plant Story. And, okay. um, Mike Plant, uh, actually was a Minnesota native and grew up not far from where I'm sitting right now, um, who led a very interesting and adventurous life back in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties, he got into uh, solo round the world sailing and oh, okay, wow. he, along the way, he, he also, uh, happened to, uh, hike from, uh, the top to the bottom of South America solo. It was like 12,000 miles. Um, he did some adventuring in Europe and, and even got uh, mixed up in a little drug trafficking and was in jail. Um, definitely a flawed character, but a very interesting guy who um, became one of the greatest uh, solo sailboat racers in history, especially American history, um, who tragically disappeared. His boat capsized, was found floating without the, the big keel bulb in the middle of the Atlantic in, uh, I think, 1992. Um, wow. nobody quite knows what, what happened, but you, you know, you can imagine it was a fairly catastrophic, uh, capsize. Um, but the movie is, uh, it was produced by, I think his nephew. Um, and it kind of traces okay. his life and, and, uh, you know, by all accounts, I, I had only vaguely been aware of him from the news back then and, and kind of reading some things about him cause I'm a bit of a, a sailing buff, uh, or at least an armchair sailing buff. And, um, he was kind of one of these rebellious sort of classic sort of American sportsman who breaks into a sport that's been dominated by, you know, in this case, the French, um, not unlike a, a Greg LeMond as a cyclist who, um, sort of broke into the, the tour de France back in the same era, back in the eighties, uh, plant was someone who, 
you know, sort of got into to round the world sailing when the French really dominated the sport and, and made a success of it and earned respect around the world. But um, he had this sort of dark side, um, but also a very sort of adventurous side. And, and um, it's it's really a great movie, and uh, um, it's available on iTunes. And, and uh, just, you know, if you're into kind of just... A, what makes these adventure types tick and, and kind of a good sort of little history story about a, a kind of an arcane sport. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Check it out. Coyote, the Mike plant story. Very, very cool. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't click that link to even read uh, anything into it. I just saw coyote and uh, that's not, not at all what I expected, not knowing his name. Uh, that sounds really cool. Yeah. Definitely something that sounds like a good download for a flight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to watch a little bit later offline. Yeah. Uh, so my final is actually a really simple thing. It's kind of laughable because I can't decide if I like it or if I kind of hate who I've become because of it. <laughs> um, but it's this, uh, it's a, a little pocket that you stick onto the back of your phone that holds a few cards. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like cargo shorts for your phone. <laughs> yeah. So I know, but like, so what I decided to do is I didn't stick it on my phone. I stuck it on my phone's case. Oh, yeah. So if there's a time where like I don't want that or and I don't or I don't want the bulk or I don't want to feel it in my hand, I just pop the case off. Mm-hmm. But but it's a ten dollar like f- fake leather thing. It's it's pretty subtle. It holds three or four cards. You could probably slip a bill or something in there as well. Maybe some business cards. Like I, I, it would stretch. I think you could keep kind of s- s- fitting more stuff in there. But you know, I put three cards in there, some ID, some credit cards, that sort of thing. And it basically means I don't ever carry a wallet now. Like in my normal life, if I'm traveling, then I'll have a wallet and my passport, all that kind of thing. Yeah. But just for kicking around and going to a store, going out for groceries, out for coffee, something like that, I don't even think about bringing my wallet anymore, which I kind of love more than I hate having a cargo pocket on my phone. <laughs> yeah. So again, I haven't decided if I hate who I've become because of this, like if I'm now a villain. Yeah, yeah. Or 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 this is just full dad spec, I'm not sure. Yeah. But I definitely love its functionality. And uh and and it's easy enough to not have on the phone. I just pop the case off, I can drop the phone in my pocket or if I want it thin enough to drop my phone into say a jacket, like a a suit jacket or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was 10 bucks on uh on Amazon, pretty straightforward that way. Again, I feel bad even talking about it cuz I'm not sure if I'm just like torching some credibility, <laughs> but from from like an EDC standpoint, this is super handy and I love not having to pick up my phone, my keys, my wallet. Yeah. Now it's just I already have the phone and you go and it, it's just a little bit more simple. There's a little bit less to carry. It doesn't feel like, you know, you don't have anything in your back pocket, which I kind of like. And it was it was ten bucks, and it's the kind of thing where like I've already like worn a hole into one end, so maybe you should buy a, a different one. Yeah. But if you like, if you go on Amazon or whatever, and like Google, you know, phone stick on wallet card case thing, you'll get like twenty thousand options. Yeah. And they're all like less than fifteen bucks. So just kind of pick one that suits your style. If you want one covered in pink sequins, they got that. <laughs> if you want one that's kind of looks like carbon fiber, I'm sure they got that too. Well, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're all about functionality and, and I think the same people that criticize this sort of thing are the ones that uh, that don't like cargo shorts and, and zip-off pants and that sort of thing. But, until- but I hate I hate cargo shorts and zip-off pants. Like, I would be the guy criticizing. Like, it's it's a weird, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'd like it. It's a weird yeah, dichotomy but, I've but, found. Yeah, but, you know, I step off I, I, 24 hours of flying to Sri Lanka and I, it's 90 degrees with 90% humidity and I get off the plane and I want to zip off my legs. I don't, care what i don't care what you know it's it's super chilled in the airplane but it's super hot when you get off it's like you know zip off pants kind of makes sense and at that point it doesn't matter i i've seen these things around and and uh i've i guess the one question i've had is you know 
And I guess it's the classic argument, like, well, if you lose your phone, you lose everything. You know, you lose your ID, ID and your credit card. If I lose my phone, I have lost everything. Yeah, yeah. Like a credit card is not going to fix that problem. Yeah. I can make a phone call and cancel the credit card. That's fine. Right. Uh, if I've lost my phone, like my life is over. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I've lost my I've lost my boarding passes. I've lost all of that. Like as long as like I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily want to um, have a little pocket on my phone that held a passport. Yeah. Or like if I had a card and of like like if when they eventually make it so your passport's a card, right, and not a book. I don't think I would want those two together because yeah. then then you're real scared. I, I like I'm very protective obviously of my passport when I'm traveling. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with a phone, everything's backed up on Google. I'm not going to lose anything if I lost the phone. So, uh, you know, the, the convenience, I think outweighs that to a certain extent. I mean, talk to me after I lose the phone and a couple <laughs> credit cards and my driver's license. And, and I might tell you like, yeah, don't ever do this, but yeah. right now the little cargo, cargo pants for your phone. Yeah. I, I'm kind of on board. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's a decent show. Yeah, I think so too. It felt like a kind of a good old fashioned classic, uh, TGN, some good, good final notes, uh, a lot of watches and a lot of watches and uh yeah it was great so well as always uh thanks so much for listening and a big thanks to hodinky for supporting the show hit the show notes via hodinky.com or the feed for more details you can follow us on instagram i'm at jason heaton james is at je stacy and be sure to follow the show if you're not already at the gray nato if you have any questions for us please write to the gray nato at gmail.com and subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts Music throughout the show is Siesta by Jazzar via the Free Music Archive. And we leave you with this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment.